Welcome to Old Town New World. We're here in Millstone Pizza in Old Town Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. <laughs> and we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. So today, uh, we have, of course, with us, as always, Mr. Silent Micah. Scream something at us, Silent Micah, please. Wow, dude. Tone it down. Um, we also have with us Chris. Nice shirt, Chris. Thank you very much. You're, you're welcome. Uh, and we have our actual guest, uh, Miss Velma Love. Welcome, Velma. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. So, Velma is from York, and I got the opportunity to work with Velma. Um, in York, uh, with, for the, on behalf of the City of York and the Economic Development Corporation of York, doing some interesting work. Um, and so, what, what we want to do is, I think we're good. Everybody good? Thank you. <clears throat> Let me start that over. Um, so, Velma is from York, South Carolina. It's where I live, it's where she lives, and we got to work together on a project there, um, doing some consulting for economic development, and um, she's still going strong with a volunteer work there, so we're going to hear about that. We're going to hear about her business story catalysts, and we're just going to learn about, about Velma and everything that she's been involved in. So, um, Velma, let's start with, if you'll tell us about the work that you do with Story Catalyst. Well, Story Catalyst is a coaching and consulting business, but I named myself a story strategist. A story strategist, then, is someone who uses stories with an intent. And so my intent, then, is to help people, organizations, and even whole communities uh, recognize the story that they are operating from and then be intentional about changing that story. So as you can imagine, that takes me into some kind of strange spaces. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I guess that's the nature of the work that we did together, I mean, because we were working with the York community as a whole. Right, that's right. Yeah. So um, now, you, when did you start the business? I started the business about, uh, I guess, five years ago. Okay but I've been in York for three years. And the first couple of years I was in the academy when I actually started Story Catalyst. So my background is in religious studies and I was really interested in sacred narrative and how people make decisions and live their lives according to sacred stories. And in doing that research, I began to realize that our individual journeys are all sacred. So I started looking at people's personal experiences and so Story Catalyst kind of grew out of that. Oh wow, that's really cool. I mean, I know Chris is a, that's your right up Chris's alley here. I cannot be more excited about <laughs> this episode now that I understand the, the width and breadth of where you're coming from. That is very exciting to me. Yeah, Chris is, you know, always writing stories, making, Micah and Chris making movies. Um, everything we do at Revenflow, you know, in our marketing work, we're always talking about the nature of story and how that plays into everything we're doing. So, um, you know, even in, in all the history and culture and religion, and I guess this is how you came to it, what you just said. I mean, I, I always think about this story is at the, at the core of everything. You know, I mean, you look at, yeah, all the great religions, all the ancient Homeric stories, all that stuff. So is that where you came to it? That's what I, what I came to, and communities form around a story. And then that story becomes sacred, and they recruit other people to embrace that story. So we do the same thing in our, in our everyday lives, and especially in our communities and in our civic associations. And then the, the sort of narrative that we carry in our psyche then sort of determines our behavior. Wow. So before we talk um, more um, 
about how communities can be impacted or altered by kind of altering that story or understanding that story uh, and, and, and kind of the work we were trying to do in York and what you're doing there. Let's learn a little bit about your story. So you were born in York. I was born in York, but I did not live in York after high school. So I went off to college and I never came back. How many, hold on, how many siblings did you have, were you born with? I was number two of 10. 10, holy cow. Wow, yes. So when I went off to college, I would come home to visit, of course, but I never lived in York uh, as an adult. I lived many different places, uh, other places in South Carolina, like Columbia, Greenville, South Carolina. Then I lived in uh, upstate New York, uh, New York City, Tallahassee, Florida, Los Angeles, California, and Washington, D.C. So immediately prior to moving back to York, I was living in D.C. I was working, directing a research project at Howard University School of Divinity. Contract work that ended after three years. And on some crazy whim, I decided this is a good time to move back to South Carolina. Yeah. Okay, so you, so you moved to York, and um, what did you find when you, when you got there? I was in culture shock um, because the York that I left was vibrant. There was energy, you know. And when was that again? So I left York, I guess, in uh, early 70s. Okay. Early 70s. So there was, you know, there was some activity going on right, yeah. uh, downtown. Well, I, I knew it was a different town, but I didn't really get what that meant until I moved back. And then I started asking questions about what's going on in the community, is anybody working on community revitalization, what's happening downtown. And I was kind of looking for a space that, that would, what, I don't know. Uh, one of, uh, uh, at the time I was actually involved in uh, a narrative coaching training session. And my coach said to me, you have to find uh, a place in the town that is an oasis for you. So out of trying to actually uh, feel at home, feel my own place of connection, I got involved in uh, the Economic Development Corporation, and uh, that's where you and I met, yes. and that's sort of the beginning of another chapter in the story of my life. Well, that's wonderful. So, so currently in York, or like, let's talk about the work that we did. We, you and I went and tried to, I guess, I mean, I guess we were trying to hear the story of, of York. We were trying to get input from everybody and kind of hear their thoughts, their perspectives, so that we could then turn around and, and create some strategic planning and, and some actions and move out of that on the other side of that. So what's your assessment of, of what we heard? And, and before I ask you that question, let, let me say this, just for the, the, the both people out there listening. That, uh, we got um, YorkSCForward.com is a website where we, Velma and I wrote up everything that we heard and everything that we studied and kind of put together and learned when we did our little listening, two months of listening uh, from York. So if you want to check it out, yorksc4.com. But, but you, you give us, Velma, what you think we heard and what you think we saw. Well, I think we discovered there were people that were hopeless and apathetic, but there were also people who were excited about possibility. And so the, the possibility kind of um, emerged and uh, York SC Forward presented us with a number of ideas and a number of people who, who were ready to uh, jump on board and, and change the story, so to speak. So 
Um, that was exciting and out of that I recognized a couple of things. Uh, one, that York is still very divided in terms of race and class. So there's a, there's a distinctive, decidedly racial, economic, social divide. One of the things that I, that I like to do with story is to use just everyday people sharing their personal experiences on a particular topic. And in that, you're able to bridge uh, differences and to sort of speak to the human spirit. So one of the projects that I'm working on now is called Kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope is a term, is a name that I landed on because of, when I was growing up, Kaleidoscope was one of my favorite toys. Because, you know, you look in it and you see this diversity and the colors look different and the patterns look different. And um, I was trying to come up with a name that would reflect that, what happens when people hear different stories. So they see, they are able to bridge the differences. So we have a Kaleidoscope community storytelling series um, once a month. The last Tuesday of every month is hosted at um, Jasmine Cafe and Catering, where five people from the community, everyday people, will tell a story. And that has become actually popular. So folk come and they listen and they make connections just by listening to each other's stories. So Kaleidoscope was sort of my personal project that grew out of listening to the people in the community. That's great. So Chris, what's your... Uh your quote, or I guess it is, about your, your philosophy about the world. About oh, with the, I think it was Mr. Rogers said that there's no one you couldn't learn to love if you could just hear their story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's at the heart of compassion, and compassion's at the heart of kind of the human experience. And I'm, I'm afraid that we tend to lack, a, lack some compassion these days in our, um, in our uh, thank you so much, in our national politics. In our national dialogue, Absolutely. yeah. I think the inverse of that quote is that I believe it takes abstraction to hate someone. It takes abstraction to be violent against someone because for you to, to hate someone, to want violence against them, to want to hold them down, oppress them, you, there's no way you can think of them as being related to you. You can't, it's just not part of your instinct. So you have to abstract them. And I think the internet, sorry, I love the internet. It's capable of wonderful things, but as sometimes it allows you to abstract people a little too much. Oh, I agree with that, yeah. So, so, so I mean, a grassroots effort to get people to come together in a small space and share stories can have a really large impact, much more than the maybe, you know, like, I don't know how many people are at your gigs, but like if there's 12 people in the room, I mean, or 20 people in the room, it can have a much bigger impact than that. Yeah. Exactly. And we usually have between 30 and 40 people in the room. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, I didn't mean to downplay your success. Jeez, wow. Aren't I the jerk? <laughs> so it, it uh, I mean, it is really fascinating. Um, the first one we did was on love, and we just asked people to share a five to ten minute story about love. And we always have an open mic spot. So the open mic spot, um, someone told a story and she said this is a story about the love of community it was a, it was um, a tragic story about and, and a real story about um, a band trip that actually happened in in York in the 80s where the band went to Disney World for competitions and they won they won all of the competitions that they entered but they lost a, a member a band member was drowned while they were there. 
So when this woman told the story, she was part of the band. So she had the first-hand exposure to the story, and she's, she told it with such, uh, gosh, such passion. Uh, we were all sitting on the edge of our seats, and when she ended, there was not a dry eye in the room. Um, I was supposed to tell a story after her. I could not speak. The emotion was so, what should I say, heavy, powerful, palpable, you, you know, in the room. All I could do was I, I turned my back to the audience just so I could get, a, so I could try to gather my voice. And I turned around and I said, the end. Wow. <laughs> that was it. And everybody, um, you know, all the people stood up and everybody hugged each other. And oh, wow. it was just sort of amazing connection that was made. And she said, and the woman who told the story said, that was my experience of the love of community. When they came back to town, she said all of the people in the town lined the streets, uh, black people and white people, and as they came off the bus, everybody was crying and hugging and cheering them on. So, Well, you know, we talked about racial divide uh, in York. I mean, it couldn't be more stark. I mean, you know, it's like old school, but, but but lacking some of the, I guess we romanticize the past in ways because like, I, I'm I'm guilty of romanticizing the, an older school version of something that, wasn't good either. You know what I mean? But but it doesn't seem to have any of those qualities anymore. You know, it seems harsher and and like meaner somehow. Is that fair? Yeah, I, you know, it is a different time, and so different, you know, different energies. You know, you different in, in different sensibilities. So the expression comes out in, you know, in a different way. I mean, I was part of the early integration in 1965, Freedom of Choice. And that was um, a time where it, it, it was hostility, but it was, um, what should I say, uh, more hidden, I guess. I don't, I, I don't know. It, 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 the expression varies that I can say at, at different times. But, you know, in addition to, you know, that, that theme of division, uh, one of the things that came about was you know, really interest in community. For example, I chair the Engage team, and we have a group of, of volunteers who have been working on a park study um, for the last, I suppose, maybe five months or so. And um, they have you know, met and talked with people, and they have visited all the parks um, managed by the city and they're making a recommendation um, you know, to the city about some things that should be upgraded or making whatever. So, so that, is, um, you know, that is good, that is hopeful. Also out of that work has emerged the uh, White Rose, no, we changed the title, the Yorkville Literary Festival. Yorkville Literary Festival, which is scheduled for the first weekend in October. And that initiative is actually to encourage families, children, the community in general to, to place a stronger emphasis on reading. So we're, you know, we're looking forward to that. Oh, you know, I mean, if there's like a single thing to focus on, because you can't focus on everything and we'd love to focus on a million things, but if there's a single thing to focus on, it seems like reading's a pretty good one. <laughs> Because in terms of empowering you to be functional and um, opening doors to have to hear story and compassion, build compassion. I mean, you know, um, the whole idea that you can 
walk in someone else's shoes by reading some type of fiction, it is is it expands your horizons, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's it's funny you were saying about that experience where uh, someone told that story and everyone was so emotional, and that's because when it, she's telling a true story, you know, and it's Aristotle said storytelling storytelling is pity, fear, catharsis, and the pity just means you can make me be in that role. You can put me in those shoes. Empathy. Empathy, yeah. And the fear is just that, that because that's sort of what we deal with in life is fear. Anything that, you know, if you're going to be alive, you have to deal with stuff. And the catharsis is you get over it. But the... Um, and the plot introduces the thing to be afraid of. Right? So you, yeah, so yeah, you yeah, get yeah. introduced to a person and you have compassion for the person. And then something happens and now you have fear because you have compassion right, for the person. Right, right. And the thing is that's even true in even if stories that don't necessarily have an obvious challenge or fear when you tell a joke, there's some fear in there because the even if you're telling a, a real story of a funny thing that happened to you, there's an expectation and sort of an ironic change that can happen. Or it's not a story worth telling. Or it's not a wor story worth telling. Yeah, but mo but most stories are, you know? I mean, the... the uh, I don't know. I heard this woman recount her drive, her, like, trip inside Target for about 45 minutes when I was eating lunch the other day. And it was not a story worth telling. Right, true. Exactly. But, you know, I think the, the, the big cliche is they say, write what you know. And a lot of people struggle with that because, uh, you know, George Lucas made a lot of money with this movie called Star Wars. Where's this? <laughs> what is this about? It's the Star so Wars. Stars are fighting in a battle? This is great. I think it's along those lines, okay. yeah. But, uh, you know, George Lucas never been to space, uh, you know, but he's writing the DNA of the story he's telling is based on his life and his yeah. experience. He he's got to know a Han Solo. Right, he or knows. It's an amalgamation exactly. of people he knows, yeah. Exactly. He knows a Han Solo, he is a, a Luke Skywalker, and um, so even when, you know, the, the fictional stories that we see and that we love, the, the DNA of those stories, if you really broke away all that surface level kind of exciting fun stuff, underneath all of that really is, hey, this one time when I was a kid I wanted to gather my town and I couldn't and blah blah blah, and you know, and that sort of is, that's the DNA of all stories, fake or real, you know. That's interesting, man. So. When you were starting out, Velma, in academia, was it more of a, that you were just um, personally interested in kind of large cultural, historical thing? I mean, or were you even then uh, captivated by the individual? Or was that the journey? I don't know. You tell me. Let me think. See, I, I learned to love stories at a very young age because my grandfather was a storyteller. I mean, that was the way he entertained us. So we'd all gather around him and he would tell us animal tales. And I, I think I was born a researcher. So I like to listen to the real everyday life stories. So, you know, when, when all the kids were out playing, I'd be hanging around inside with the adults, sort of hiding, listening to what's going on. So. That's my daughter. Of course, she loves to play too, but man, she can listen. She hears everything. That was you, I'm sure. That was me. That was yeah. me. So I started, you know, like really sort of paying attention. And my my curiosity was, what is the difference between uh, colored, it was colored people then, colored and white. So I was always listening for stories that would help me answer that question. And that was at a, you know, at a really, really young age. So, you know, as I got older, so my heroes were the Freedom Riders. 
from, you know, I was in elementary school when the Freedom Riders came through Rock Hill. Yeah. And I... You've been over here to the yeah. lunch camp? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yes, yeah. right over there. Right. Yeah, well, that was it. Well, we were in, in church and my parents were going to the jail because some students were arrested and they were in the York County Jail in York. And I thought, oh, well, this is fantastic. It's a great story. I, I mean, you know, yeah, right. I thought, you know what? I'm I'm gonna grow up and go to college, and I'm going to get arrested, and I'm yeah. going to <laughs> go to jail. So now, had you heard at that point of the no bail piece, or were they going to bail them out? At that point, they were bailing them out. Okay, yeah, so that they were still bailing them out. So they hadn't gotten to that no bail piece right yet. So at any rate, clarify if I may to our, anybody to either of our listeners that may not know, um, the the no bail piece got introduced because the uh, you know, the folks would protest, like the African-American crowd protest, and then the white folks come in, arrest them, put them in jail, and then they'd come and the NAACP come and bail them out, but they're just paying the institution that jailed them to begin with, and they're making profit off this over, hand over fist. So they're making money putting these folks in jail, and all of a sudden the NAACP figured out, whoa, whoa, whoa this isn't working at all. So they said, you know what, if we don't bail them out, they gotta, they gotta pay for them to be in there. They gotta pay for them, you know, provide this, provide that, and all of a sudden, the, cr the jails are gonna get overcrowded, and it will force a crisis. And then we have ourselves uh, a little revolution going on. Is that fair? Right. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's that's how it happened. So, so where are we now? Uh, uh, okay. So, so that was something that sort of formed me, right? And um, after I went to college, my first degree was in sociology. And I was always a change agent, so I was always about trying to understand society and how to change society. Um, so after college, I worked for a number of years in uh, nonprofit management, United Way, Big Brothers Big Sisters, community development, community arts development, all you of this. Really doing much? You were just sitting on the couch smoking weed. <laughs> right, right. You're yeah, right. right. <laughs> all right. Well, so I got it. I got it. I'm up to speed. <laughs> So it was many years later that I that I said, well, what about this, this spirituality thing? It seems like there's, there's something in that that can help people change their lives. So that's when I went back to grad school. I went to um, uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York City, got a master's in divinity. And I thought I was, well, actually, I was on an ordination track in the United Methodist Church. And then I realized that, well, that quite wasn't quite my thing. So, so hold on, let me pause here. <laughs> So the, the way you um, said that you discover that, and I'm gonna, I can't even remember the, to quote you, but kind of discovered that uh, almost you know religious story and so can, can be a way to access to people and all, makes it sound like you weren't born in the South where religion, where you're just dripping in, in Christian religion. So, I mean, obviously you grew up in a church, I imagine, right? Right. So what made you kind of get to a place where you could even come back to it? How did you, did you leave it on purpose? Or You know, well, it, it, I always ask questions. That's why I said I was born a researcher, because I always asked questions and some of the answers didn't, didn't make sense to me. So, you know, that, that desire, that, that sort of intellectual inquiry or curiosity sort of was driving me all the time. Uh, then in seminary, I uh, Union Theological Seminary is a very sort of um, out-of-the-box experience. So it's not your typical Christian seminary. Sorry, it's kind of world religions and you have lots of exposure. Uh, so while at Union, I started studying different spiritual traditions 
and in particular African spirituality. So my doctoral work then is about the sacred narratives of the Yoruba Ifa tradition out of West Africa. And so all that, that text is an oral text, and some of it has been recorded now, but it's, it's a whole text of stories that the diviner accesses through sacred um, divinatory implements and all this. So still there's this thing about story and what that means. So I guess um, in all of that, I was looking for some way of practical application because remember, my, my whole thing still is how do you change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you change people and how do you change society? So all the way through all of this study and all of this work in the community, that's still my driving question. Now you're, okay, so you, you had 10, uh, nine brothers and sisters. Yes. In Europe, back in the 60s and 70s. I met your brother the other day at a funeral of my family. He was um, up on the podium being, couldn't have been more eloquent and articulate and well studied. I met your, another of your siblings, Oliver, who is uh, with the school district, um, couldn't have been more on top of doing positive in the city of York through the school district. Um, are all ten of y'all like super educated? All like. Children, what happened? What's going on? I mean, we're talking about York back in the 60s and 70s, right? I mean, so tell us about that. Well, my mom was very uh, focused on education, and so she would, um, she would have us all sort of sitting around the room uh, at night, and she'd go from person to person to person to check the homework. Oh, wow. <laughs> that took, like, that took till tomorrow. So no, y'all didn't sleep. I got it. All right. <laughs> and so, and because I was, I was a bookworm. You know, always a bookworm. So, I would finish my work, and then I would be kind of like the designated tutor. So I would oh. go around and help my siblings. An older sibling. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, and then, and my dad was a farmer, and you know, he was a man. He was, he was an outdoorsman, connected with the land. Uh, they had really strong. Chris is an endorsement. I'm an endorsement. Yes, that's what endorsement. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. call it. Great <laughs> I get that catalog. I get the great endorsement catalog. Get all my clothes. It's like the new remote. The new remotes are out, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you got to see them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so, and, and I guess my mother. Um, you know, my mother was very active within. Well, both of them are very active with with the NAACP. So they had this sort of community-minded, a community-spirited um, sort of thing that they pass on to us. And so everybody, although we are in different fields, a brother who's an engineer, some in education, you know, some in uh, corporate America, human resources and all of that. But, um, you know, everybody's kind of sort of directed toward how can I make a contribution to uh, a better life, yeah. So, so back then, I mean, your parents being involved in the NAACP, what did that look like? Was it, um, and I, you know, Please excuse my ignorance uh, and saturation with popular movies and stuff, but like, I mean, was it a, a dangerous environment to be involved in such progressive thinking, or was it not really? I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, for me, because I'm a change agent, remember, it was exciting. Right, right, you know, right. it was exciting. So, um, and you know, I didn't mind. I have a brother who, who came up through the ranks in the NAACP from, you know, the youth chapter all the way to some national. Uh, leadership role, but I was actually more radical okay. than that. 
so. And you don't mean radical like on a skateboard with your hat turned back. <laughs> no. <laughs> gotcha. Well, just clarify. Yeah, just, yeah. just, just radical in, in my thinking, yeah. you know. Uh, so, <laughs> well, let's see, how, how would that go? If I were not radical, I would not have been, you know, among the first influx of students at the University of Black Students going to the University of South Carolina oh, wow, yeah. in, uh, what, 1967, oh, wow. right? And, uh, How did that feel? Um, now, it was scary. Yeah. It was scary, and it felt kind of uh, like you were disconnected from your tribe, okay. you know, sort of. Um, but way out of your comfort zone. Out of way out of the comfort zone, but you know. You kind of seeking that a little but bit. But yeah, I guess I was kind of born for that. I think, you know, in, in the uh, Yoruba tradition, they say that you choose when you're going to come into the world and and you choose why. So in the spirit world, so I have this little fantasy story about when I was in the spirit world and where I chose to come to and why and when. So I, I say, okay, I chose to come into this family uh, that I had was lots of brothers and sisters, lots of love and support, but um, give me enough, and I chose to be born in a small southern town that was racist so that I could understand racism, and then I chose to be an activist. And so all of that, you know, so in keeping with my philosophy that we live out the story that's in our head, you know, that's kind of the story in my head, you know. Uh, about that, so yeah, so so there was some fear, and you know everybody wants to feel like they belong, and so when you're in a situation where you feel as though you don't belong, it uh, it is uncomfortable. It's unco it's very uncomfortable. But what may and some of some of my classmates actually dropped out of college during that time because they never really found their space. You know, a couple people ended up with some mental health challenges and just kind of dropped out of society. So there, there are some, you know, some stories that are kind of not, you know, not pleasant to think about. But there were also those those experiences of people um, bonding, you know, and find finding a community. And um, like, you know, okay, in the in the Christian tradition, they say you have to find, learn to sing the Lord's song in a strange land was that kind of, using that metaphor, it was that kind of thing. So people um, found each other in a, in a way that connected and sort of developed community and sort of on the journey. I mean, do you have an example of um, experiencing compassion in a surprising place? I'm thinking about the racial thing with the being in a college, being early in, maybe not feeling welcome, like you're saying, I mean, did you... Were there some surprising moments with some people being compassionate? Uh, there were, and it's interesting, the moment that comes to mind. Um, okay, so I had grown up in the Methodist Church and at the University Why of South Carolina. You grew up at home. They didn't oh. let you go, come home. They put you in the church. You grew up in the church. <laughs> okay, Jason. No, I'm just <laughs> okay, so I grew up at home. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I went to the church often. Yeah, a lot. I was there a lot, right. yeah. <laughs> so at any rate, so then there was this uh, Wesley Foundation. And you, for the, it's a student, the Methodist student organization on campus. So I distinctly remember the two pastors who were there, and they were, um, you know, pretty open, and they, you know, they tried to befriend the black students and all this, but one of the pastors said to me, uh, this is during the height of, uh, like, all oh, the black consciousness movement, there were 
uh, riots going on at South Carolina State College in Orangeburg and, it, you know, kind of um, a lot of student protests. And one of the pastors said, don't you get involved. And I thought it, I thought it was a joke. I, I'm like, surely you don't mean to say don't, don't get involved. And so I looked at him and I, and I, you know, pointed to my dark skin on my hand and I said, I am already involved. You know, this makes me involved. And when I realized that it wasn't a joke, I mean, he, was, he wasn't joking, he was serious. And he, and he was trying to express a type of compassion he because he cared about you. Because he cared, he said, don't get involved. Well, then there was another pastor there who was standing on, who was younger, and he was standing on the sidelines, and he just started smiling, you know. He understood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that moment stuck out to you, that the other and guy the, understood. Right, the, the, the other guy understood. And actually, yeah. and that's what came to mind, yeah. you know, oh, just wow, now. That's, so. that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You're getting loaded up with ginger ale. You're not driving, are you? <laughs> I think I can handle it, <laughs> That That's an incredible story. That's an incredible moment. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I learned recently, and, and I'm a pretty educated dude. I mean, you know, I went through all the channels and whatnot, but I just recently put together, I guess it, I didn't have to, is the thing. I put together that in 1970 is when all the private schools were formed in South Carolina, and it's when all the public pools closed. And I'm like, that's weird. Why would that all happen in the same year? I'm like, 1970? Is that a magic year for opening private schools and closing public pools? And then it dawned on me, holy crap, that's because forced segregation, forced integration happened in 1969, and so the 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 power that be was like, well, screw that. Right. <laughs> We're shutting yeah, everything down and starting down. our own schools. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's nuts. <laughs> I can't believe I've never thought of that before. Is that something you've always, that, that would be totally normal for you to know? Yeah. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be totally normal for you to know. If you if you were in a minority culture, then you, you would know. You would know. That. Yeah. That's like the whole thing where, where you hear white people say, oh, God, why you got to make this about race? And you hear black people say, it's it's always about race, but but it's like because the reality of the the kind of normal white person is that it's not about that because it doesn't have to be at all. It doesn't absolutely doesn't have to be, you know. Right. You know, it's interesting. You were saying earlier about the bonding that took place when you were with that group of people. You'd all been separated, and you're all in this challenging situation, and you you, you were comparing it to there was something from the Christian. Uh, mythology or story that you're saying that, that uh, you were comparing to, I don't remember what it was, but I know that's the idea of, uh, there's, in religions and stuff, there's the idea of high cost signaling, which is the idea of, like, I do a thing that's not easy publicly, so you know that I'm with you and we're in the same quote-unquote tribe, and so I feel like a lot of the, like what Jason was just saying about how in 1970 that was that was that racist, scary idea. We're scared of this. We need to fix this. We got to do something else because we're scared of this situation. And that's people. Ultimately, all that stuff is in is is a quote unquote tribe. And it's so there is like it's a good thing when you have this bonding with other people in this because it's easier for the human brain, I think, to understand a small group of people, these are the people I can trust. And that's what is at the heart of all that garbage, yeah. is these are the people I can trust. And it's not, and, and I don't want to call people shallow, but if you're shallow, it's not easy for you to think any farther beyond those easy ways to get that. Like, I grew up, I'm a nerd, so I grew up in school, if I heard a kid say something about a nerdy thing, 
I'm gonna be friends with them. And for me, that was my signal, was nerdiness. Uh, but you know, if you don't have that kind of thing, you're not really smart. <laughs> you know, you can get wrapped up in those negative kind of fake stories, you know? So how do we, how do we use the value of that bonding? How does it not get distorted and poisoned? And kind of like, honestly, narrative in general, we're in a time right now where I feel like narrative has been used to poison and do negative rotten things. It's, people are using story in, in, in some of the most powerful way that we've seen some of the most bad actors use story to, to, to motivate and, and get people really, I mean the whole uh, Russian Facebook thing is about oh, telling yeah. stories yeah. that incite yeah. people's emotions yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then they're like, well we'll let them We'll let the fallout happen. We're just going to get them excited yeah, <laughs> and then we'll see what happens. Terrible things happening there. Awful, awful things. But the expertise with, sorry, the expertise with which it's been done is staggering. Right. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. But awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you're right. You're right. Um, someone was saying that, well, one of the, one of the upsides or positives about Facebook is that uh, everybody has a voice. So if you didn't have a way to get your story out, now you do. So, well, I mean, that, that is true, but then also um, it puts sort of the onus on those people who kind of want to lean more toward the building uh, empathy and build, building compassion and creating a story of oneness. It sort of challenges us to kind of step up to the plate with some creative, innovative ways to do that. It really does, Velma, because think about it and like remove the internet and, and, and go into a room where there's 20 people in a room. If there is a um, loud, passionate person, then that's going to dominate the experience of that room. And if there is a person who is um, patient, wise, and willing to listen, then the, the rest of the people will not even know that that person exists. And, and while listening and processing and, and kind of truly hearing and kind of uh, saying back and are, are the true skills of um, communication, which is the true kind of magic of progress, those are the, are the quiet skills. And they're not the uh, skills of the warrior. And the warrior will win, the warrior will strike down the, the, the Buddhist who is, is sitting there. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's kind of what's, what's going on, you know? That's what's going on. But now when you said that, I immediately thought about music because, and this is why I love the arts, because I think, you know, in the end, the artistic expression can win the day. Bravo, bravo. Okay, so let me tell you this. I went into Jasmine Cafe, newly opened restaurant in downtown York. And um, it was, the room was filled with uh, white and black people. First of all, the room was filled. You know, that's worth noting. <laughs> Secondly, that it was filled with white and black people. And there was a, a jazz uh, trio playing that I thought, where am I, man? Holy crap, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. I loved it. My wife loved it. We thought it was awesome. This is just one night and it's representative of like many nights, you know, every weekend kind of thing. But this was our, you know, my one example night. Um, month later, maybe, my in-laws who live in York um, 
my mother-in-law made the comment. She said, um, excuse me, she said, I'm really enjoying Jasmine Cafe. And I said, that's awesome. And she said, I really like that it's, um, and she was like, she struggled for words a little bit. And then she said, culturally, you know, good, or like she didn't know how to say it. You said Jasmine, right? Yeah. I thought you said Jasmine was playing. I thought you were saying, Jasmine. she said, I really enjoy Jasmine. Yeah, Jasmine. <laughs> yeah, she's like, look, I need to tell you I'm into Jasmine. <laughs> Don't tell your father-in-law. No, no, but she was, she was, she was trying to say in the most like, you know, benign language possible that being among white people and black people in an environment where there was jazz playing was an incredible experience for her in York. Yeah, and, and I know uh, you're involved in, in helping Jasmine, and, and you know, let's talk about that project. Who's behind that project and what's going on there? Yeah, Jasmine is, is, is an interesting um, place, has become an interesting place. Some, some nights you, you, you've got the mix of people there, black people and white people, and everybody's talking, and then some, some nights you, it's all black and it's all white, you know? So you kind of don't ever know, but the idea, um, you know, when I moved back to York, I started telling that story. When I moved back to York, I made contact with South Carolina friends that I've been disconnected from for a while. And uh, Charles Gary um, and his son were some of those people that I contacted. And I said, uh, I'm in this town that... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking for an oasis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so bring a fire truck, because we need some water up in this piece. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when, I, when, when my coach said, you know, find an oasis, I used to walk down Congress Street. You know, I would just walk and look at you know, trying to find the space that I connected with. And I, I love that building, that yeah. historical oh, yeah. building. I would look in there, and it, it was closed at the time. There was no, no business in it. But when you looked in the window, the table was set as if you could just walk in, oh, right. right? So it was something about the energy that captivated me. Yeah. Now, it, was a, it was a beautiful historical building, had character. Ghosts in there I know, dinner. it could have yeah, been right. ghosts, but whatever. The Bible was like, oh, this is just perfect, you know, this, is, this should be. And I had this dream about what all it could be, and I saw it as, um, you know, this kind of hub of energy and bringing people together, and there were activities, and it was bringing life to the town. And so I called Charles up and, you know, kind of sold him on this story. and. <laughs> You know, and then he, he later on, uh, he, he, his son was ready to move out on his own as, as an executive chef. And uh, he brought Chuck up and he looked at it and, you know, everybody, everybody's dream kind of converged. And then, you know, in a few months after that, Jasmine was open. Well, I hope that, um, it's, it's a great restaurant. Uh, I hope that um, the town can, can you know, c continue to catch up so that that all works out. I mean, I've seen some wonderful things um, be just just ahead of the, of the market and, and struggle because of that. Yeah, you know, so. yeah. And I, I don't know that's where they are. I'm not saying that's where they are, but it, it is a wonderful place. It's a wonderful experience. So, a good thing. One of the things that, you know, part of my vision then is to have, there's a, there's a restaurant in D.C. I don't know if frequent in D.C., but it's called Busboys and Poets. And busboys and poets, it, it was Wait, named... Busboys and what? Poets. P-O-E-T-S. Oh, poets. Oh, yeah. Wow, cool. yeah. So that name came from um, Langston Hughes, who's an African-American uh, author, poet. And he, he actually worked in a restaurant while he was trying to get his, his uh, poetry published. 
He was a busboy. And so there's a story about uh, someone came in who was in the publishing business and he found out and he wrote one of his poems on a napkin and slipped it to the person. And that's how he got discovered. And that's so, awesome. Was it, right. was it Gene Simmons? Because he discovered Van Halen too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my history is bad. Probably Gene Simmons. It was probably Gene Simmons. Don't Google that. <laughs> so, so then, so of course, many years later, um, the, the the owner now of, of Boss Boys, and I think there are three or four you know, in the D.C. area, uh, has the philosophy then that the restaurant is a place where people connect. Yeah. So I kind of borrowed a tagline from them and said, Jasmine, it's more than just a place to eat. So it's a, it's a place where people um, meet old friends and make new friends. And so the idea is to continue to bring in more activities. So I'd like to see us have a family fun night, um, you know, poetry, spoken word night, uh, uh, sipping paint night. and uh, Sipping paint? Yes. Sipping, sipping wine and painting. Oh, sip and paint. Right. Sip oh, okay. and paint. I thought you said sipping paint. paint. No, sipping. Yeah, right. no. I'm like, sip I'm like, really whoa. hip new thing. Yeah, that's right. That's, I don't think that's okay. I'm not <laughs> signing off on that one. Sorry. <laughs> right. And, you know, have book discussions and have authors nights and, you know, all that kind of thing. So that's, you know, that's sort of what the vision is. And hopefully, you know, we can sort of move more toward that. When I was, um, it, I went to a Catawba school, the Catawba school, um, to go to high school. I mean, uh, all the way from kindergarten through 10th grade. And um, that was, now it's Westminster Christian Catawba school. So like the Westminster church bought it, but it wasn't a Christian school when I went to it. And um, after 10th grade, I went to Charlotte Latin, which is in Charlotte, obviously, per the name. And um, Charlotte Latin apparently some dad or something had these crazy high like Republican connections in government. So like while I was there, the speakers at our when we would gather in the auditorium, we had Colin Powell, um, we had uh, Norman Schwarzkopf. Um, right before I came, uh, they had Gerald Ford, uh, George Bush. Uh, this is at a high school in Charlotte. This is a kid like Mel Gibson. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we <laughs> nice, um, but we would go to the auditorium and like that's what we would that's what we would experience. It was insane, right? So anyway, uh, we had this English teacher named Mr. Smith, and um, he was a disheveled man with a dirty brown bag, right? And he'd been all over the world, and he was completely fascinating to me and uh, my friends. We thought he's the coolest guy ever, and um, he was like, I have a really important speaker coming to Charlatan and um, he was wanting to get him to speak to the whole school but the school denied it so he only could have him speak to his English classes. Well it turned out it was this dude named Sam Hamill and Sam Hamill was um, worked closely with um, uh, a City Lights bookstore in San Francisco to publish um, Jack Kerouac and um, the poet um, Ginsburg. Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg and all that crowd. Right, Sam Hamill was like right there with him, and he was he was like the Mike Gentry of that. He was the guy who like published all the books and you know did all the work and all that stuff. And he was coming to our school, right? And they wouldn't let him speak to the whole audience. It wasn't important enough, whatever. So he spoke to our English class. And Mr. Brown, I mean Mr. Smith, organized this. So they let me. Um, oh, so he came and he said, um, "I won't. Uh, can any of your students play the guitar?" And um, so I was like, 
you know, volunteer. I was like, I can play the guitar. And so I brought in an acoustic guitar and I played a blues riff while Sam Hamill read poetry um, over top of it to our to our English class. Now, you know, being the age I was, I was 90% just feeling cool. But 10% of me was soaking in a larger historical context and like everything that was going on. And, and you know, I think that, you know, progressive progressiveness and radicalism gets so one-dimensionalized. It, it's kind of like when, when we had the, the um, Martin Luther King Jr. Appreciation Day. It's like for one day of the year, and, and are, are you asking you know, anybody like, um, what do you know about civil rights? Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's so one-dimensionalized that sometimes it, it, it doesn't have, it's like that's a little side fantasy project or something. So really I wanted to just share that story because I hadn't shared that story yet. But mostly, but I'm also trying to get to a question about like, you know, how do we make story be something that um, isn't um, scoffed at as not the real work or isn't um, seen as a luxury of the intellectual, the academic, when people are, half the people are struggling to even freaking buy food and the other half are struggling to control kind of politics. And, I mean, what, how does story become something more real than what we're doing? Yeah, I, I think um, I struggle with that because when I say, I stop calling myself storyteller because that conjures in people's minds someone at the library talking to children, right? right? So I said, well, no, I'm a story strategist. And then people were like, oh, well, what's a strategist? Well, you know, well. You say synergy. <laughs> yeah. You can respond synergy and walk away. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, wow, that's incredible. Yes. Um, but, the, but the, you know, I do a lot of work with personal narrative because then it's the, the story of the everyday person because even in, in talking about kaleidoscope, people, if they have never been, they think, oh, well, you know, some storytellers who are accustomed to being storytellers and performing, and they'll come and they're both. And then folks will say, oh, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, well, I mean, everybody, folks will say, oh, I don't have anything interesting. Well, you can't live and not have something exactly. interesting. You can't. I mean, so the more we do that kind of uh, give, give space for that personal narrative, the oral history, so to speak, the life experience story, then it, it sort of uh, expands it, you know? So I would say, and I think this is uh, probably a challenge you face, and tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, a sequence of events is not a story. A, a perspective on a sequence of events is a story. Um, an ability to articulate a perspective on a sequence of events is a story. So do you struggle with um, people that have, have maybe been involved in some, I, I, I mean, there's some people that have been involved in an exceptional sequence of events that don't really have a story to tell. And there's some people that can make a story out of the most mundane sequence of events ever because their perspective is so strong. And I mean, I'm not pointing anybody out or anything. I'm not trying to call out anybody when I say that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, Chris. Would anybody in present company like to comment? <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, about the idea of, in terms of and it, sorry, I was actually. Let me going, reset the question. Yeah, reset the question. Do you hate people? No, I'm just kidding. Um, the, the 
the, you can have a, an incredible sequence of events and, oh, and a no real yes, story, yes, yes, okay. or you can have a mundane sequence of events and an incredible story. It's all about perspective and ability to tell stories. Absolutely. Okay, so sorry. Yeah, okay. So I, I did. Okay, so the idea of that is like now there's these restrictive rules about what a story is, and you can go by this book that says hit, you know, a story is these 15 points or these three major points. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, you, you were talking about music earlier. Which music is expression, like art is expression, and that, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. Well, sometimes the story, like in a, if you read a book or you watch a movie, the story is 100% in the thing that the person made, and you can interpret it how you want, but the story already exists. But now, when you hear a piece of music, especially if it doesn't have lyrics, or you see a painting, the story happens in in you. So the it's, expression is still a story. But it's it's on the other side of it. So I do think that so while you're trying to evoke a story, evoke a story, and so yeah. I think you're right that a series of events is not a story. Uh, to express to someone sometimes, I'm sad. This thing happened to me. I was happy. I was sad. I was. It was funny. It was blah blah blah. So even if you're not a quote unquote storyteller, um, the, I think that yeah, just to express is to tell a story ultimately because even if that story happens on the other end, you know. I mean, music in, in, you know, you have like, Toby Keith can write a song and say, America's punching you in the face, and then, you know, that's okay. Oh, that's cool. You can have it. I'm good. I think I'm, I'm done. I'll have that half of one. There you go. Classic Micah. Yeah. Um, so, versus, you know, some like, anarchist punk band who can write a song that's telling you, here's how I feel about these progressive, extreme liberal ideas, and that's lyrics, but the, a melody doesn't tell you anything about politics or whatever. Um, so, so you argue that tells a story, a melody tells uh, but, a story? Yeah, but no, no matter what we do, there's a story. Expression does tell a story, even if that story... Is it because it's linear? What, in, is uh, the expression or the story? Or the melody or anything. I mean, is, is, linear, is linearness required to make a story? Oh, not at all. No, some of my favorite stories aren't linear at all. Pulp Fiction is not linear. Well, it is. It's, it's not ultimately, but every scene is. No, it goes back and forth. Well, well, but there are other stories. Switches, but, but the scene itself. Oh yes, yes, yes. It's the linear. scene within itself is, is often linear. So I'm thinking of a melody. Like, it, it, I mean, if you hit one note over and over again, is that a story? I guess it could be. Now we're getting into really abstract yeah, art. It is. No, it 100 percent is. I mean, that's and we're getting we're getting out into the granular. But the thing is, is there? I'm so I'm a Spielbergian. I'm a Spielbergenite. I can't talk about anything without talking about Spielberg. Um, but the reason that, and his truest story, this most personal story, is Close Encounters, the third kind. And in that story. It makes complete sense because that he, he was a keyboardist. He was a keyboardist. Jammed out in front of aliens. Who, who just Sorry. totally jammed out in front of some aliens one time, and that's the story of Spielberg. But uh, I think it's brilliant that the idea that if there could ever be a truly universal, as in the universe, a universal language, it would be music, because music can incite emotion, and it's nothing but vibrations but it can make you feel. You can hear a certain melody and say, oh, that's sad, or oh, that's scary, or oh, this is moving me to tears, and, and you're, you're telling the story, it's just vibrations. And so I think there's no such thing as a non-story. So let me say this, Velma, how do you, I mean, I think we want people, I, I think you would want people to um, learn more about story, invest more in story, understand the power of story, all that stuff, yet 
a lot of bad actors, however you define bad actors, are um, able to do those bad actions because they are um, saturated in story, almost protected from the outside world by that story. That story is so strong, it's stronger than anything they learn, any facts that might exist, any data. That story allows them to, to do bad things. So, I mean, is it, how do we justify embracing story if it can create so much evil? Hey, listen, we should clarify. You don't mean bad actor as in like Jared Leto. <laughs> you mean like a, a person who uses performance in a negative way, right? No, no, no. I mean someone who does awful things. Right. Yes. Uh, in, the, in the real world. Hurts other people. Kills people. Yes, I do not mean the craft of... Um, of acting. Okay, okay, okay. So, so, I, so that's a good clarification to make. I mean, people who do harmful things are often what allows them that lack of compassion is is their own saturation in story, and it gives them that barrier to abstract, like Chris, you said, to abstract other people. Their story justifies it in some way. Right. Okay. I mean, and that's what story. I mean, that's what all of our stories do. It actually sort of drives the behavior. Yeah. So, is is I think it's about recognizing. Like recognizing the story that you're living, recognizing the story that other people are living. No, what is it that keeps the black community below below uh, Jefferson Street right. in York? I mean, what what is it? It's a it's a social historical story yeah. that still drives behavior. It's easy when you think that most people are kind of just navigating this world and everything's fine when I when I was in a smaller bubble and thought that like things were pretty cool and everything was pretty fine then then I was it, then I was easy for me to say oh the people doing these horrible things somewhere their story is like crazy that's why but as I've as I've grown and, and met people I've realized that everybody's story is crazy and like and everybody's involved in different things and so yet there there still is some type of I think there's some type of agreed upon common good. I mean, and some people might say it, it, is, a, it is an absolute, um, and they might justify it with their story as being an absolute. Some people might say it's, it's just a um, like kind of common agree, agreed upon thing that we somehow have come to. Whatever, but there's something that, that makes me say, well, it's funny, there's this liberal thing that has flipped over in, in current politics, in current situation in the world right now. Like, I was always the one saying, anybody's story is legitimate, anybody's story is valid. You know, you oppressors quit saying that all these uh, outlying stories aren't valid. Now I'm in a situation where I'm like, okay, so the guy with the swastika on his chest carrying a torch, maybe that's not as a valid story. Like, maybe we don't need to say, we need to hear his opinion too. I'm thinking that dude is like, I mean, that's a problem. And, 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 and we need to unite to stop it. A therapist needs to hear his story. Yeah, right. No One, twice a week. <laughs> Three times a week. But 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 you know what I'm saying? Like when when do you like Eli Wiesel said, and he wrote the um, thing about the Holocaust, and he lived through the Holocaust, and he said that neutrality favors the oppressed. I mean, favors the oppressor. Meaning, if we say, oh well, there's good people on both sides then the people that are getting screwed are going to continue to get screwed. When do we make a moral stand and say, that's not okay, even though there's a completely um, human psychological story that's validating that perspective, it's not okay. 
I mean, how do we deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's still about awareness, sort of being aware of what the cultural narrative is and then what the outcome of it is. So you've got, you, you know, so there was um, one of my professors at Union, James Cone, who, who just died a, a few weeks ago, and he was known throughout the world as the father of black theology. So what he said, he sort of flipped everything around and he said, Jesus Christ is on the side of the oppressed. So he started saying this, I guess, like before I met him. So it would have been in the 60s and, you know, 70s. I didn't get to Union until the late 90s. But he was saying, Jesus Christ is on the side of the oppressed. And so he challenged everybody. He said, okay, uh, that cultural narrative of the, of the white Jesus with the long hair and the blue eyes, that's, uh, <laughs> that is a cultural construction. So then look at these narratives and say the poor people, the oppressed people, if you look at the Christian story, then that your hero was that person that went for the, the people that was, yeah. you know, was oppressed himself. Was oppressed himself. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's, it's still, it's about, you know, then there's a lot now about um, diversity and inclusion, you know, which is his own story. So then somebody, and I guess that would be the public intellectual, who is calling attention to how these cultural narratives play out in society and what does that mean to people? Because, it, and, and then there's a whole movement of oneness. So how can we get to a story where everybody is connected, meaning that you would have a certain amount of, of, of empathy and compassion for a human being, you know? And so then that, that, the emergence of that type of story is still drawing from some of these, these cultural narratives that are all around, that, you know, that's in the mix. Go ahead. I want to say it's so one of the things that I think goes on and you were saying earlier about these people that it keeps these people on the side of Jefferson Street it's a story and that's the thing is I think that the ability to defy what society has told you you will be is very rare for both the people who are oppressed and the oppressors they are both often being told what they'll be because of just how they were born, where they were born, the skin they were born with, everything about it told them who they'd be on both sides. And it's the rare person who can break free from that. But I do have hope. I do think that the younger generation has less faith in that old story. And that's how I, I see it. One, one problem we have with our, our ability to talk about this is that to a, to a lot of like um, white people, that are out there working every day and kind of struggling to get by, for them to kind of misinterpret what they're hearing to think that you're saying that they are oppressing somebody right. when they're like struggling to make mortgage payments and, and save for education is something that they can't even hear. And so so the the kind of kind of the black and white thing, you know when you're talking to the majority of kind of middle class and middle lower class white folks, if, if, it's, if they hear a, start, a starting point of that they are somehow acting in a bad way to oppress some other people, they can't even freaking hear that. I mean, and that's not helpful even dialogue to them. So, so it's like you gotta like, you know, it's the whole thing of institutional racism. Like, institutional racism is like 
and I'm making up statistics on the fact uh, on the go. But I mean, it's mostly it's like 80 percent non-bad actors. You know, it's like it's not people that are trying to hold another group of people down. It's a system that people are participating in on a daily basis, trying to do their best, and they're not being bad intentional people. You know. To be a part, to the idea of a systemized thing that, yeah, you don't have to be in any position to, if you're in that system, which we all are, you have some part in it, you know? Yeah, and it's not, so, so I think that like opening dialogue, you can never, like think about you and your spouse. What if you started a conversation like this? I want to tell you why you were wrong. <laughs> Yes, like okay. I, I promise that will not go well. I promise that will not go well. If you, if you instead you start by, can I tell you how I feel about? You got a way better shot of of communicating. And this is the person that you are closest with, that you sleep with every night. I mean, a stranger is especially not going to hear you when they think you're saying, even though you might be saying other words, but they only hear you saying. This is why you are guilty of being bad. You know what I mean? People can hear that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, back in the, I guess this maybe, let's see, maybe in the 70s, there, there were people going around the country doing this thing they call sensitivity training. They were doing these small groups all, all over, all around. The universities were sponsoring them, and they were going out in various communities of leadership folk, uh, grassroots people, et cetera. And they were trying to get, um, diversity in the room, like black people, white people, whomever in the room, so that they could participate in some kind of um, open dialogue where they would have exposure to a perspective, of somebody else's perspective. Right. You know, in a, in a space that was not, well, I guess it was highly charged too, but maybe uh, a kind of a constructed space. So it was, it was different from meeting on the street or whatever in a boardroom. And they did that, you know, for a number of years, and I'm not sure exactly what the outcome was, but I recently found out that some of that is is happening now intentionally. Okay. Uh, there's a nonprofit organization in Charlotte that I just heard about that set up these sort of uh, community. Uh, the Institute. No, something else. But they are they actually do these intentional sort of dialogue sessions with different groups of people. So they'll, they'll contact all those corporate people and the nonprofit people, whatever, and say, send us five people to the session. So the idea is that in these small group sessions, you have an opportunity just to sort of see the other person's shoes. So it, it kind of gets back to being intentional about this shared narrative space. And it's all about kind of trying to open that, you know, just trying to open it. Sometimes the openness comes different places. Yeah. You know? Well, those things are so valuable, yet it's so easy to um, look at a spreadsheet and underappreciate any type of activity that doesn't have a quantitative um, return on investment. And when you're, so like, I mean, I, I, I did the uh, American Leadership Forum um, program in Charlotte, which is uh, done by the Lee Institute, which is about opening dialogues. Um, across a 16-county region, and we did. I mean, we we delved into you know race, economics, 
um, anything we could delve into, it was all about being uncomfortable. That was the whole purpose of the, anything they could do to make us uncomfortable, they were trying to do it, you know what I mean? And uh, that was the whole point. Because it was all these, you know, people that were VPs of this and VPs of that and whatever in there, you know. And, and that's great, and, I, and it, was an, it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life in that sense, but, but um, it, it's, it was a little vacuum. And now that I'm out of it, they contact me every year and say, oh, you know, do you want to give to it? And I'm kind of like, eh, nah, I'm giving other things. You know, and then, I, and then they're like, you know, can you help us get some people in? And I'm like, yeah, I send an email or two. And, I, and it just doesn't seem that important. And, I, and I've, I've got, I feel guilty saying that on mic here, but because it, it was one of the most powerful experiences. So I'm, 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 I'm exposing myself of being guilty of being like, oh man, I got other things to do. You know, that's people getting together in a room is not, I got other things to do. Yeah. You know, things just happen. I mean, uh, you, when there's a disruptive narrative that emerges, I mean, I think you facilitated that in, in, in your work in York. Thank you. You know, and then somehow, like, I resonated with it. You know, so then somebody else is going to resonate with this podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's, it's I don't know. It, you just kind of hope things that begin to mushroom until it, until there's kind of a tipping point. It sort of tips back, and there's a new. I mean, that's how consciousness happens. You know, we all are trying to elevate. Our, I think elevate our consciousness in some way, and some of it is through, um, you know, academic exposure, and some of it's just through lived experience. Yeah. But that those encounters. Uh, however they happen, I think that's that's how we evolve. I mean, that's how the human brain and the you know the human being and the human culture actually. So then, evolve. what we do, so then what we should do, is do our little things with 35 people in the room, because the impact of that is larger than we'll ever know. Absolutely. So I, I got a tweet uh, mentioned the other day from a guy, I, I want to say kid because that's my memory of him, he's got to be your age at this point, uh, Silent Micah's age, he's like 20, well, Mike, what are you, Silent Micah's like what, 30, 17, Chris, he's 17, he's 8, Silent Micah's 8, <laughs> um, early 30s, early 30s, this, this, this guy's, anyway, this guy's probably 31, so he's probably 10 years, 12 years younger than me, I'm 42. I was teaching ninth grade English when I was in my mid-twenties. So, you know, they were 14. I was uh, 27, so they're 13 years old. So anyway, he's 28, 29, 30 years old. So he, he, he tweeted something like, um, I mean, it was something like, I, I owe my whole, you know, whatever to my ninth grade English teacher who changed my life. And it, it, it was he's such a... He's a writer, yeah, a poet yeah. who tells stories, um, and and it it blew my mind because it's like, I mean, he was one of like 400 kids that I taught over the course of 350 years, and and to be honest, I mean, I don't really even remember having a, any special connection with him, and yet he credits me. You know what I mean? So the impact you have on people, you don't really know the impact that you have on people. I mean, Chris, your your stories, you you have no idea who you've impacted. I have every single name written down in a book. <laughs> I measure. I regularly measure the impact. Yeah. I have a Geiger counter. Yeah. My score is 47 and a half. <laughs> the internet told me. <laughs> yeah. 
that's true. I, I'm, I'm thinking now of some students that I taught at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. Uh, I don't know, maybe I don't know, seven, eight years, maybe ten, ten years ago. And um, every once in a while, somebody pops up on Facebook, or somehow they get in touch with me, and they say, "Oh, don't you remember that time when?" Well, I don't, but right. you know, it it has impacted them. But this scene comes to mind where I actually had my students doing this a life story research. So they go out interviewing people and then somebody said, well, can we just do our own stories? And I thought, well, I mean, that was not what I planned, but okay, let's try it. So they started doing, interviewing each other. Oh, wow. And they, when they would do the life story on, you know, one of the peers in the classroom. And it was, it ended up being a very powerful experience for everybody. And one, and one student said, I think you should do this you should always do this with your students. He said, I will never look at another person the same way again, ever. I did this thing at Goddard College. I did a, uh, my master's in writing up at Goddard College, a super hippie school. I mean, way out in the country, in barns and stuff. Like, the school actually got shut down in the 70s because it was a giant orgy, they turned out, and they shut the whole school down, and then it reopened. But it was the only, um, it was one of the only MFA, uh, Master of Fine Arts in Writing, that existed in the country. There were two in California and two on the East Coast. And, I, and when I applied, I was like, oh, I was in Asheville. And turns out the other one on the East Coast was in Swannanoa, which is like 10 miles from me. But of course, I didn't apply to that one because my, you know, my desire to go far is part of my story. You know, like you know. So, so I went to Vermont and did this whole program and stuff. But one of the things that we did one day was we were set in front of a partner, and we had to look into their eyes for a freaking obnoxious amount of time. And it was an incredibly powerful experience. And it was just anatomical, you know, in a certain way, yet it was so profound in another. And so I wonder, like, what am I just, like, making up about this person as I'm staring in their eyes? But it was, like, it was so uncomfortable at first. And then it was so powerful. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, yeah. I don't know. Well, as you can see, I'm just a strong advocate of story and the power of story, and, and you know the ways that that can be used to uh, again to sort of bridge differences and to sort of transform these boundaries that we establish based on our stories. Yeah. So the boundary is established based on the story, but the boundary can also be dismantled from the story. Amen, sister. Well, we're gonna have to let that be the profound moment that wraps up this podcast, and Velma. It's an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure to work with you, to have you on our podcast. I've never in my life been able to um, sit with a person and talk just so, I don't mean just on this podcast, I mean the work that we've done, so just openly about things that make people so cringe in the South. I mean, like race and stuff. I mean, you start saying black people, white people, people, you know, especially white people get so uncomfortable. It's like their toenails are being peeled off, you know, and, and you and I have done that over and over and over. And we've invited other people in that conversation. And it's just been a, a, an absolute pleasure. It's been a, a highlight. I mean, it's been one of the notable things in my life that we've been able to have this dialogue. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, it's been great. I mean, who would think? Really? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So great. Who thinks some hippie kid right. and would join with you and, and make a difference, right? Yeah. Chris, 
Your shirt's nice. Thank you. I feel like I need to clarify. I actually think Jared Leto is a good actor. Oh. Academy Award winning Jared Leto. I do think he's a good actor. I think he, I think he's an obnoxious person, but I think he's a good actor. I don't know, dude. I'm sure he's a good actor. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> that's my final thought. That's, well, that's Jerry's final thought. Well played. I'm glad you ended it on something profound and meaningful. <laughs> so, Velma, thank you for being with us. And it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. And we'll see you guys next week on Old Town New World. Micah, you, Silent Micah, you want to finish this out with yelling some um, chants from your old uh, college days, football days? Well said, dude. That was raucous. All right. Bye.